Welcome to the Coach Fury Podcast. This is where fitness and geekdom collide. It's time to live long, be strong, and die mighty. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 56 of the Coach Fury Podcast. I got an unexpected guest on this one. I'm so excited for you to hear me talk with Dr. Ed Thomas. For anybody that does Indian club swinging, you might have gotten your first pair of Indian clubs, the polyurethane ones, packaged with the DVD, and Dr. Ed Thomas would have been the gentleman showing you how to do Indian clubs on the DVD. And I got to meet him four years ago in an Indian club workshop with Brett Jones and Phil Scarito, and he's just one of the most interesting people that I've met. He's got such a background in the physical fitness field, but more importantly, he's just a historian of physical culture. And it's always a learning experience, an eye-opening of where these things happen. And there's some huge ahas that happen in this talk. And I'm really excited for you to hear from him. Uh, really super progressive for his time, so much so that now, 20, 30, 40 years later, we're starting to be like, oh, that's exactly what he was saying back then. So you gotta leave this one a listen. Before we get to that, let's talk about some things going on in the world of Fury. Uh, I don't talk about Patreon much, the way that you could financially support this show, but I do want to upgrade certain things on this show. The mic you're hearing me talk to, talk through, is one of them. Thank you to my patrons that help pay for this microphone. Folks, I need a laptop. My laptop is getting old. It's getting full, largely, uh, even while backing up episodes of the show onto an external drive. Uh, if anybody really appreciates this show or what I'm trying to do, you can visit patreon.com slash coachfurypodcast and make a donation. However small it might be, will help because it's cumulative. You can do, I think, a monthly, a one-time, or a per-episode donation. And I hate asking for money because I am going to do this anyway, but I could really use that money to support this show um, on a gear front. Right, not in a taking Kim out to dinner front. Uh, I, I need a new laptop. So, <laughs> the begging is over. That felt weird to even say. Let's talk about some uh, other things going on. Speaking of Kim, she made Coach Fury Podcast t-shirts. It says Coach Fury Podcast on the front, where fitness and geekdom collide on the back. We also took Ridge Carpenter's Die Mighty logo. Kim made a new Coach Fury I Will Die Mighty tee. You can find these shirts at teespring, T-E-E-S-P-R-I-N-G dot com slash stores slash fury dash industries. So you got some options to show some uh, love for this show, uh, for love for the Die Mighty message. and just look good in a sexy tee, a handsome tee. That's it for uh, the selling stuff. Workshop's coming up. Uh, I'm actually, this morning, about to drive out to Boston to teach DVRT Level 1 and Level 2. I'm very excited to see some old friends and make some new ones. And then I'm going to be assisting Josh Hankin at DVRT Restoration and DVRT Level 1 in New York City on October 13th and 14th. And then, folks, end of October, uh, I blast off to Japan and Taiwan to teach for the RKC and OS and do a little Indian Club workshop. And then I'm back... Take a little bit of a break through December and January 13th, OS returns to MFF Bowery. And then we go for an RKC at Momentum Fitness, March 2nd and 3rd, March 10th, the HKC at MFF Bowery. And things are starting to progress from there. I'm talking with my friend Dustin, who's going to be on this show shortly, uh, about coming out to Tulsa for some fun. So, folks, lots of workshops coming on. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you dig it, if you could try to find a way to support the show financially, that's fantastic. Uh, but please, if you have listened to two or three or more of these episodes, 
drop us a rating. That goes a long way in the, from the, for the overlords of iTunes and stuff. Drop us a five-star rating if you think we deserve it. All right? Uh, thanks for listening to my spiel. Here we go with my talk with Dr. Ed Thomas. I think we can say honestly that uh, the World War II generation was a bit more um, linguistically adept. They were more succinct and, uh, and like John F. Kennedy, if we compare John F. Kennedy to our current president in terms of their language skills, it's a universe away. Yeah. What, what an example to use as a reference point. High watermark, the lowest watermark. Uh, just in terms of communication, whatever your political, I mean, I, I will openly admit I'm not a Trump fan whatsoever, but even on that, if that were the case that you were affiliated and a supporter of Trump, he is not good with his words whatsoever. And that's the way to look at it. Honestly, it's, I've never voted in my life, actually, Jerry. I, um, but, but I can, but when I, when I look, I'm looking at them generationally, uh, this, uh, our current president is younger than I, and of course John F. Kennedy was a was my older brother's age, or my older, you know, an older or a younger uncle. So I just look at the two and the changes that have taken place in in a relatively short period of time. They were so they were so much more eloquent and succinct. And yeah. let me ask you, going on this, and this is a little off topic. So I remember growing up, my my. My mom's family, my aunt, my uncle, and, and my cousins lived in Queens, and my grandmother lived above them. Uh, I never met my grandfather. He, had, on that side of the family, he'd passed away already. But one of these childhood memories I've had is they always had this oversized JFK coin. And aside from just his speaking skills, what do you think it was if, if for that generation, for that time period, that JFK just seemed to stand out so and maintain being held in regard? Because certainly we found out he had some of the same types of flaws over time that some of our other presidents have, have dealt with. What do you think it was during that time that he was the right guy at that time, at least for the party of the supporters? Because it did seem to leave a bigger, longer lasting impact than that things that I've noticed over my years and generations. Oh, I, he really had a, a, a just a presence that was for guys like me, the younger generation, he, 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 was, uh, he, was, he was a heroic figure. You probably know that he, he was injured during World War II. He, he, uh, he pulled some, he, I think he ran a PT boat and, uh, and it was blown up and he had to haul some of his sailors through the water uh, to an island where they were rescued. And, 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 and that was real deal. Yeah, real deal. I didn't know that. Yeah, the guy, and, uh, and he was very frail to begin with. He'd always been very frail. If, if you want to go down John F. Kennedy's road and connect it to, uh, to physical culture, that's a fascinating story. And the link is going to be um, uh, Hans Krauss. And I think the book he wrote was I Was JFK or JFK's Secret Doctor. And now Hans Krauss is known as the father of American physical medicine. He arrived in the United States. He was an MD. He arrived from Austria. Uh, in about eight, 1932, I think it was. Don't hold me to all these dates. I mean, your your, your listeners, if they're really interested, go out and find out about these guys. But uh, when, yeah, oh yeah, this is this is a, this is a fascinating story, which brings us right up to the problems and the challenges and the opportunities that we have today. But uh, when he arrived, 
And I spoke with him, oh, maybe three times before he died. I, I tracked him down when I read his books. I was so blown away because I was reading about the, the uh, I was reading about my own youth because, see, when he arrived, he was an orthopedic MD, I think, and, and he, he saw that Americans didn't move very gracefully in 1932 compared to what he had seen in Austria. In other words, we were losing our body mechanics on a huge basis for some reason as early as 1932. And so he began to, he began to get all these back problems coming to his clinic. And so he and Sonia Weber and Ruth Hirschlin, who's Bonnie Pruden, another pioneer in women's physical training and children's physical training, they produced a, a test, which was fundamentally a test of core strength. And somewhere around 58% of the kids tested in the United States, around three, 4,000 kids failed the test. And, uh, wow. uh, yeah, and, and only around eight or 9% of the European kids failed. Now, Eisenhower got a hold of that study because they were concerned at that time about the poor showing during the Korean War and the disintegrating fitness they thought of, my, of, of the baby boomers gen generation of our fitness. And, uh, in fact, uh, Lieutenant Colonel George Walton wrote a book in the 70s called The Wasted Generation. He was a World War II guy called back in to, to try to figure out how to stop the hemorrhaging of soldiers during the Vietnam era who were unfit for service. So I think it was 50 or 60 percent. I can't remember. What, what, but, do, you think, uh, what do you think was, what was the start of all of that in that point? Because, you know, as a, as a relatively new trainer, you know, within the last eight to 10 years, you know, the thing that everybody likes to focus on is, you know, remote controls and sitting in the cars and sitting at work and sitting at computers and playing video games and all that. But we're talking going back, you know, 90 years and, and people were already starting to have the decline. Was it already industrialization? Was it because we were starting to work in offices more? Well, the history is what it is. It's, it's very, it's very specific, very specific issues, um, happenings, people. And uh, once you see the flow of the history, then it, it starts to make sense. There are some tipping points, which, which you can go to, and that'll bring us eventually back to JFK and, and Hans Krauss. But uh, the tipping point would have been around 1920. From around 1885, which was when really we began to organize physical training in the United States, it, it was coming out of European systems of training that came over with the immigrants. So in other words, I'm sitting in a place called Davenport, Iowa, which is the, on the border of Illinois and, and, and Iowa, and the first railroad bridge across the Mississippi was built here in the 1850s. And it was at a time when thousands of Germans were pouring out of Germany. They were escaping revolution. They were called the 48ers. And they were some of the best and brightest that Germany had. And they were coming here to the United States. Well, a lot of them planned on going back and fighting again, fighting the monarchs and fighting the power, you know, the powerful. So they, they brought their system of, of physical training with them, which was embedded in, a, in, a, in an ideal called the Turnverein. So we, they built a Turner Hall, beautiful building, about two blocks from where I'm living now in downtown Davenport. And the centerpiece was a gymnasium. That stuff that they did back then, and I caught the tail end of it until about 1963, I think, when it burned down or you know collapsed and the whole system fell apart. Well, that all began to disintegrate in about 1920, and it took that long for it to die. And so all that knowledge was lost, and that knowledge was physical training that we could trace back to the Greeks. And, I think and, most, and most of us, I think, would assume that that happened way later. 
that's pretty. It was nineteen twenty. Nineteen twenty was the end of that of that era called the golden era of physical training in the United States, eighteen eighty five to nineteen twenty. So if they want to look into that, they can Google the battle of the systems, and they'll see that how it how that unfolded. But the unfortunate uh, the unfortunate outcome of all of it was that we began to define our physical culture in the mainstream in terms of sports and games. And so that's how, and, and there was this new field at the time called physical education, which was just beginning. And so uh, prior to the 1920s then, a lot of the, you know, as these schools began to develop their, their programs and the Swedes and the Germans and the Czechs, they all wanted to get into the schools and promote their systems. So they fought each other. And in the end, we took the sports and games and we began to lose all that knowledge of those systems. Only when the Berlin Wall went down in around 1989 did we begin to get some of that old stuff out again. It came out in the shape of equipment like kettlebells and yeah. med balls and, you know, weighted bars and off the ground training. And, and all of that was geopolitically driven because we began to to get some of that information. Prior to that, you'd have to be a world-class athlete to get into one of those countries and see what they were doing. Do you think sports became so popular because A, the state of play, or did people already start to see that, uh, you know, in terms of needing, I shouldn't say needing gear is easier, but in terms of teaching the sport on like a school level, maybe it needs less specificity as say like something that might have been done at a Turner house, like Indian clubs. Cause I've seen videos of, you know, Indian schools using Indian clubs in the classroom. What do you think drew it that sports was such a big draw? You know, I'm trying to think if there was things other than fun involved or motivated behind that, I guess is where the question is going at. Clearly now there was a, a it was money. a perfect storm, just a perfect storm of, of mistaken um, decisions uh, that, uh, that left us unprepared for World War II. It, between 1920 and 1941, we became um, increasingly less fit as a country, not mentally, physically, emotionally. And World War II then brought us back to our senses. And that takes us back then to John F. Kennedy and to, uh, uh, to, uh, to those, that generation. See, when prior in, in from between 1920 and 1932, you might have seen on some of the videos that you, you've seen on my YouTube channel, the in, people who were interested in this stuff we would now call fitness were considered, um, we were, uh, they, we were considered suspect, even deviant, or at, at least stupid, just misguided. So there were cartoons and magazines that made fun of people that went to gymnasia. And, and as sports became more popular, they had to gut the gyms because uh, a, like a gymnasium today is basically a, a place where you play basketball and volleyball. Yeah. And so those millions and millions of dollars go into these empty boxes that have no function in, in physical development for kids. Um, See, there was this new profession starting then called physical education, and the colleges and universities began to, um, uh, to train people toward those. And, and I'll use the University of Iowa, which is close to home and one I know personally. I, I, I arrived there after I came out of the Army in 69, so I have some idea of how it unfolded on, in real time from that time on. But, but back in the early 60s, they, they, these programs were still associated with sports, 
and they, as they began to break away and make themselves more academically grown up, these a concept called disciplines began to emerge. So biomechanics went out and found some physics professors, and you know, and then tooled them into to the you know to a, an exercise science biomechanist. Then you had motor learning and. And you know all these sub they call them sub disciplines well mm-hmm. they all began to emerge, and these scientists began to uh, the scientists began to to make the rules about fitness starting in the sixties and they were always arguing with the practitioners who actually knew how to move and and so of course the scientist uh, uh, the scientist endured, and so by the eighties, even extension was contraindicated, even inversion boots were were uh, were widely. Uh, condemned by the medical and scientific community all through the 70s and early 80s. I definitely want to talk about inversion down the line on this conversation, but I did want to unpack something you had mentioned, and this was something that was very powerful. Uh, listeners, uh, the way that Dr. Thomas and I met is I found Indian clubs through Dragon Door, and they had a certification. I took the certification, and then I would go on to assist at a couple of certifications with Brett Jones and Phil Scarito, my friends Matt and James and Noah, meet some people, Brian. And Brian Gill, and then it became a not affiliated with Dragon Door Indian Club workshop. And that's the first time that Dr. Thomas and I met. And A, I'm going to be honest, Dr. Thomas, I was like so excited to meet you, but I was also super nervous because I had no idea what your personality was going to be like at, at, at the time. And secondly, you mentioned this idea that physical education, even on the school level, really was meant to prepare us that you know, for outside aggression, basically, you know, in that we have gotten to the point where we stopped thinking in terms of that, that way, and that we were just raising a generation of kids unprepared for shit to hit the fan. And do you see that changing in any way now? Because it seems like that was happening. It seems like, you know, we lost it way sooner than I would have thought in the decline of physical culture. I was thinking this was happening more in the, the 70s into the 80s and the 90s that that was falling apart. Uh, but then we hit, we got back into a stride and then seems like we started to lose it again. Do you, do you think anybody thinks of that when they think of a gym teacher these days, that the role is not just to like get kids to move around, but the role originally was physical preparation is preparation for bad stuff. Cause we live in like a softer society overall. We're, we're, we're less thinking about that on the day to day. Well, yeah, the, the uh, the evidence is clear that on average we are a much less fit nation than we were even a generation ago. We'll we'll say baby boomers. So those of you you know all of you of different ages out there can put a can pin a time frame to it. So uh, when when George Walton wrote this book, he called it the wasted generation, and he said that uh, kids in the young young men, especially young men. In the early nine, in the late 1960s, had flabby bodies and unlettered minds. Now, yeah, and so, and, and and you get an idea then between World War II, and and but here in Iowa, for instance, the Iowa high school fitness test that all boys took in Iowa, I think the the hundred percentile for pull-ups was 44. Wow. So there's been a huge. Uh, my generation was much less fit. Than the World War II generation, and and part and it, it, it's crazy as it sounds because there are so many reasons why all of this happens, and and we shouldn't despair. That's the that's the interesting thing. We we shouldn't despair uh, when, when you know a, a warrior looks at the situation, figures out where they are, doesn't hide the truth, and then reacts to it. 
and, and, and the reaction that we're seeing, which is the real strong point about the current generation, I, I suspect you're around 40 or so, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So your generation knows a lot more about a lot of things than, than mine did. You have access to you know, you know, the Internet. My God, the Akashic Record is sitting there at the push of a button. So there have been so many wonderful, uh, wonderful breakthroughs in fitness um, the dilemma is that it takes so long for that knowledge to reach the mainstream. One philosopher I read once said that everything pulls toward the middle. You know, you know mediocrity is this powerful force. It's very difficult to get beyond it. So, you know, the, the 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 real deal is how do we how do we take this issue we have right now, this um, lack of fitness, and and and, and then build build our nation, and you know very quickly. One of the big issues that we face, and I know this uh, firsthand. I was in charge of all of the PE for the state of Iowa in the Department of Education until about three years ago. I quit, and uh, four years ago, and I estimate that by the end of second grade, at least over 90% of our second graders are deformed, visibly deformed, no later than the second end of second grade. They'll never recover. So all the athletes only going to be the one who, who, who was able to endure the punishment and still accommodate the movements necessary for their chosen sport. But they will be deformed. And that's largely based on how it's the school furniture. Has- yeah, it's the school furniture. The, 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 issue, the issue is how we define, number one, how we define fitness. And Thomas Curtin, known in PE as the father of physical fitness, World War II generation, again, he said you measure it uh, through a structure, function, and motion. Beautiful way to, to say it. Well, if we, destroy the fun- if we destroy the structure of a person, we are going to retard uh, uh, function and motion, and that's what's happening. So in other words, when I was in high school or in elementary school, I didn't do well because I was one of the smallest kids in class all the time. So I was suffering a lot because my feet didn't even touch the floor on, you know, in elementary school. Tremendous stress on the lower back. But we had a slanted desk, I think around a 22-degree slant. Those all disappeared by 1960, early 1960s. Now, a 90-degree hip, the way we were all sitting, the way you spent all your career, high school, college career sitting, that exceeds, according to the best information I can find, that exceeds the the, uh, the toleration angle of a hip by around 30 degrees. In other words, the way we ride a horse is the ideal angle, 60 degrees. More of a forward and, lean. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you if you if you if you drop the knees to 60 degrees, then the lumbar curve is restored. If you go to 90 degrees, the the lower back flattens out. So you're basically, then when you have to write on a flat desk, as you lean forward, and when you write, you have to turn the paper away from the dominant arm. So now you have, uh, the the spine has been contorted into a C, a C curve with forced rotation. So the soft tissue is just completely jacked by, uh, by the end of second grade. And it impairs brain development because those the the frontal lobe just isn't getting the nutrition just getting the care it needs because the the child spends their day on on lower level i'm in pain reactions as the body's deformed and so we see all these kids acting out what we call add and all of that it's basically that we're just torturing these poor kids 
And then we've gone through the ball chair and standing desks and all these other half answers. But we just didn't know. If, if any of your listeners want to go and do some research, they can go online and look up A.C. Mandel, M-A-N-D-A-L.com. And he's out of Copenhagen. I think he's still alive. He's an M.D. But there was another group, Wasir, Bash, Wasir Bashim. Uh, you can, they can figure out the spelling. Uh, radiologists, and I think that was probably 10, 15 years ago, they did some of the really good radiological work to establish the 60-degree hip angle. But the 22 to 30-degree desk angle, that goes back as that goes back a long ways, back to the 20s and 30s. We knew about that. Yeah, but it's all been lost. All the knowledge is lost. I mean, I'm coming from a visual effects background prior to become, you know, diving into the fitness pool. And one of the things that a lot of the people that I deal with, it, it's, you know, they start to get back in carpal tunnel syndrome, you know, issues. And the first things they start doing is, you know, modifying the angles of where their tablet's at, how their chairs are sitting, where their monitors are at. And no one thinks about <laughs> that when we're developing, you know, on the earlier stages. It's all a prolonged afterthought where it's such an issue already, as opposed to just setting them up. It, it, do you think that's just an expense that schools are, aren't prepared or don't want to make? Is it because how you said, you know, the, the pioneers of fitness or, or that are really invested in it are often looked at as, you know, being partially crazy or outsiders or, um, you know, ostracized in some way. It, it, what do you think it is that's so institutionalized that it's hard to get people to realize that? Because it seems to be there's science to back it up. Yeah, the, 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 theory, the theory is obvious, and you simply need to look at the poor child. And, you know, and I've got, uh, I just gave away a huge library, but I had dozens and dozens of books on body mechanics that addressed desk issue. And, and on the chairs, I used to, the, the, the chair was never a straight-up chair. It, it would allow the child to lean back and, and, and relax a little, you know, or, you know open up the, the spine a little bit. But uh, I gave it, but here's... Here would, here would be my answer to your question as best I can understand is, I'm not sure why, but when I arrived at the Department of Education in January of 2001, I'll give you an example of how it went. I came from Fort Benning, Georgia, where I had been with the Army Physical Fitness School. So for me, there was a real sense of urgency and always has been in terms of creating young men and women who can serve their nation properly if need be under any circumstance. But when I arrived, I was shocked at how unfit uh, Iowans had become, uh, young Iowans. I was just stunned at, the, at, at what we looked like and how we moved. I, I, I felt like Rip Van Winkle. I'd been gone 20 years. And so I had three bullet points that I began to share with professors and, and the physical educators around the state, because I had the whole state to work with. And my three bullet points were in January of 2001. Number one, we have to focus on fundamental body mechanics, which are basically how we move. That's what body mechanics are, how we move in daily life, how efficiently we move. And, uh, and that's required by state law, that, or by state code, that they must, we must teach body mechanics to all elementary school children. So I said, we have to start doing that again. Number one, we're breaking the, the, the law or the code. And number two, we're killing our kids. I, right away, I got pushed back from both my department, from people in the field who were uh, a few of the real noisy ones that seemed, you know, the rest, of, you know, the rest just didn't pay attention, I suppose. But uh, I said, it's all obsolete. We don't teach that anymore here in Iowa. And then I said, we have to focus on measurable fitness. They said, that's obsolete too. 
that we focus on activity, sports and games, basically, and not on not on measurable fitness anymore. These are teachers and professors in the field. And then the third thing I said is we're going to be attacked by the Middle East in less than a year, and we're going to war. This is January 2001. And so I was labeled a, a, a militarist dinosaur by some of my peers in, in Iowa, and it didn't take long for the department to try to get rid of me. So they uh, uh, they cut me to half time. They could do that back then without with, with, we weren't used, unionized. But I just went out and got a job teaching along, and just ended up making more money. But it, they tried to get rid of me for mention, even mentioning those things, and that was in nineteen uh, in two thousand and one. And then eight and, months later, one of those. Very well, we had came. we had nine eleven, yeah, yeah, and that you know, but but that didn't help. That didn't help at all because we were we. We were struggling then to engage in fitness again, mainly because the teachers weren't prepared to do it. All of this stuff that, all this stuff we call functional fitness today, is still a struggle to do properly. All of this is evolving in real time. I remember in 2004, Perform Better asked me to do one of their. That's that summit that they do, you know, around yeah. the country, and uh, you know, I did one in, in Rhode Island, and it was. Uh, they asked me to predict the future of physical training. And one of the things I mentioned is that we would be training off the ground again, because that wasn't, TRX wasn't around. All this stuff hadn't made it to the mainstream again. But that, but that was obvious because the Berlin Wall had gone down and, and we were starting to see this stuff again. Uh, but, but it's taken that long, you know, and just in this short period of time then, uh, to, to get even some of the off-the-ground stuff back, but compared to the 1800s, what we're doing is primitive compared to what they had then. It, it's interesting going back now with, the, say, I got into kettlebells I don't know, around 2010. So they were already being in use. The RKC at the time was already a thing. Uh, it was already pretty large. This is prior to the split with Strong First. And now you can go to almost any even like a hotel gym and they'll have like some sort of a kettlebell, like a fake one, like a, whether it's like a medicine ball with a handle. And it's become such a, that has been the one big crossover item that seems to have stepped, you know, if you look at like things that were introduced as functional fitness right. items, you, you have the BOSU ball that has made, you know, ended up everywhere. You can find that in almost every gym. You have some sort of a kettlebell. And then it still seems to go back to that very 80s, 70s, couple of cable machines or whatnot to use is it is it a financial thing that keeps people out it's because people from 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 newer things like say indian clubs we were talking before um prior prior today that indian clubs seem to be making a spike and then it seemed to drop off a little bit and now it seems to be making a spike again but it at the figureheads of everybody that's trying to promote these it's almost the same group of people they've just spread out a little bit more in terms of trying to make that large. So for the for breaking into more of the mass market or you know general population, is it just because people don't want to hear still, even at like a you know big box gym, they don't want to hear about something new or that they could be doing better, or is it that they don't want to invest money in something better? Because I feel like with Indian clubs, people will be like, I don't want to spend money on Indian clubs, yet they'll spend money on some gimmicky class that really does nothing, you know, because it just doesn't look sexy enough or something. You think it's more of a, a ideological thing, or do you think it's more of a financial thing that is closing minds to some of the things that you know and that we know work and are wonderful? Well, the Indian clubs are a whole beautiful story in themselves. They, they, of course, they have origins in Iran, in Iraq, 
and 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 but the the main um, uh, the main connection in the United States is through India, and they date back to antiquity, and they're found in the hands of the Vedic gods, and so the mythology is that they. The Vedic gods gave, they were called Gada, G-A-D-A, gave the gift of the Gada to humans to make them, to make them more like the gods. Something in this device, something in this tool that Hanuman and Ganesha and Vishnu are holding is a, is a secret, there's a secret knowledge of how the mind and the body work. That's the mythology behind the Indian clubs. Eventually, the British soldiers saw the Indian soldiers using them and they described them as swinging them in miraculous and wonderful ways and they were they were they were amazed at the, the at the physical prowess of these indian soldiers and this is 1850s 60s so they ended up they started training with them and they ended up in britain and i think one of the queens back then began to uh, use them and use them and and uh, promote them or believe in them by 1914 the british suffragettes uh, you ever hear of them through, oh, that's a funny, yeah. beautiful story. Yeah, they were the they were the women who fought for rights, uh, voting rights, and other rights in in Great Britain. Well, so many of the they started training in jujitsu, real deal training. It's a wonderful story. I think it was just made into a movie recently. And uh, so many of them used Indian clubs that the that the the weaponization of the Indian club was a natural transition, and they were being brutalized by the police. They were carrying Indian clubs in their purses. And they were battering the police with their Indian clubs using highly technical jujitsu skills that they that they were practicing. But uh, uh, but but back to your point about uh, the, the discussion about where they are in the United States. There they came over in the 1860s, and there was right just last today there was an argument between whether to use the light ones or the heavy ones, and and. Uh, Simon Kehoe published one of the first books on Indian clubs, and he was a promoter of clubs. But uh, my instructor said that he really wasn't an Indian club master as much as a good, a beautiful marketing mind. Uh, but that began, the, uh, that began the debate between whether heavy was good or light was good. I think he said anything below three was used for uh, invalids and children. Um, but the Olympic weight eventually landed, I think, at three pounds. And so that argument disappeared. But Indian Club has created itself in many branches of this tree. So it, it varies upon who's using them. And, and the, the benefits accrued depend upon a knowledge of how to use them. So they didn't last long. They only made it into two Olympics. They were considered too esoteric. So one of the big shifts in training since the ninth, since 1980, the Berlin Wall went down, is that we began to recognize in the Soviet Union and in in Eastern Europe, you don't get the way they were. You don't get fit by working out. You get fit by learning to do things better and better and better. And so there's been a shift in thinking, going from working out to learning something while you're training but we're still struggling at what that looks like in real time. We tend to, we tend to lean back toward you know, the workout, and if we, we look at a route for that, much of the way we learn to train, going back to the 60s and the discipline movement, a lot of that research was done on animals. And so if you go to a gym anywhere, you'll normally, you know, an average gym, you'll basically see people training the way you train monkeys. Wow. 
So humans humans have a whole different way of processing uh, knowledge and transforming themselves, and it's a much higher level of training. And when you go back to the late 1800s and look at look at the way the culture was back then, look at look at Nikolai Tesla or uh, you know, and here's Tesla talking to Swami Vivekananda, you know, and and I mean, in Royal Rife, you know, in the, in the 20s to keep it all alive. I mean, all kinds of all kinds of knowledge exists below the radar in what makes a human body complete and highly organized. And right now, when we go to a gym, we're pretty much trained the way you train a, a primate. I, I, I like don't even have a follow up to that because I haven't thought of it in that way. I guess I've been so trying to find just as a fan, take that I'm a coach out of this entirely, just as somebody that fell into training and, and just finding these, these implements that for whatever reason sung to me a little bit, the simplicity of the kettlebell and the, the feedback, the, the outcome I got from training with the kettlebell and then finding Indian clubs and, you know, ultimate sandbags through Josh Hankin and all that stuff. It makes sense to me because of a, there's science to back it up, but also just how I feel as somebody who I turn 46 next month, had pretty banged up from years of skateboarding and you know i'm not like i'm not the best mover by far but i have surpassed what i thought my limitations or capabilities would be years ago training in this stuff and it's interesting how you mentioned this difference between you know like working out and and one of the things that when when we initially talked that i've been realizing with myself is so i've been using indian clubs for years but i found out like yes i was training with indian clubs but i wasn't practicing with them and one of the things I'm trying to find in everything that I'm doing right now for my own, you know, uh, training is thinking of it purely as practicing and not even, I know some people like to separate workout from training and training is the thing, but like even just, just purely playing and practicing to get better at a skill or a set of skills. So whether it's Indian clubs, uh, I have recently got into steel maze training and data training and, you know, um, different stuff with the ultimate sandbag and just investing that time in. And what's interesting is, is I do feel that my mobility is improved. Uh, I feel like I'm moving better, but it doesn't feel like I'm working as hard because there's a different perspective under it. I'm not worried about like how heavy something is. The weights get heavier just by a byproduct of, you know, how you said perpetually trying to get better at something as opposed to having a goal weight. Like I'm, I'm not looking at a mace or an Indian club and going like in three months, I want to hit, this and it was an interesting mindset mindset switch whereas i think right now in popular physical culture we have this other idea of having to destroy ourselves to get fit or get strong and where do you think that lies what, what do you think brought is it is it counter is it just the counter movement against we got too lazy overall i don't want to make jo I, I, for purposely making broad generalizations here but you know if we're viewed that we got too lazy then say something like crossfit comes in and it's like the op the complete opposite we can use the, you know going back to politics we can go trump is the complete opposite of, of what we had gotten accustomed to and that's that's what made it you know allowed him to succeed is because he was the complete opposite do you think that's just where that mindset came from in, in terms of like overtraining, you know, not necessarily with purpose, or is it just like a sign of the general times? Yeah, we're certainly a young country, and and so we don't have thousands of years of of of, uh, of lessons learned to help us figure out how to transform ourselves physically. But what we do know 
in our most lucid moment is that if we follow nature's laws, everything falls into place. Our bodies will grow light and, and supple and, 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 our, and our reaction times will be, you know, will be quick and, and, uh, and we'll live long and healthy lives. Uh, the real goal is to, is, to, is to land if you make it to 60 or 70 or so and, and you know, not die. Like Plato said, most people are prolonging their death, not their life. And to, you know, to die with lucidity where as long as you make it. And once again, if we go back and look at, 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 uh, at, the, at the statistics, the grim statistics are that if, if, if we're deformed by second grade and the punishment continues for 12 years, when you walk into the CrossFit gym, you're one broken character. And what's driving, when you, what, 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 what makes these uh, the same as the Turner Hall, what makes it so alluring is that you're part of a team. You're part of a family. And, and that's, that's when, these, when these groups come along and they're given names and, and, and suddenly that name becomes its own personality. Uh, you get that. In order, there, was, there were great thinkers have said, and if you want to be fit, you have to be involved in something larger than yourself, some kind of, a, of, a, of an emergence in a larger, bigger, uh, bigger issue. That's a wonderful way to look at it, though, especially, you know, now it seems such a focus is on, at least in the boutique studio land, on, on gym culture, you know, creating a culture of the members. Um, yeah, and, and that, that, yeah that, that, that kind of belonging brings you back. But in the long run, in, in, when it's all over, yeah, most people are going to, you know, are, are going to not necessarily be any better off for what they've done with their bodies while they're there. Another, exam, another way to put that would be once we deform the hip structure, squatting becomes virtually impossible on a functional level. In other words, to squat down and take a nap, you know, put your, put your hands on your knees and put your head down on your arms and, and, uh, and go to sleep for a half an hour. That's out of the question for most Americans. That's functional squatting. Yeah, and and once we I'll give you an example, once we once we quit squatting, which again would have been in 1967 in the army, we would we were still firing in in basic training or maybe AIT infantry training. We fired from the squat position. We uh, we I don't think we qualified. We didn't have to shoot for qualification, but we practiced from the squat. And by the 1969, I think it was. Uh, the, the very few uh, units were uh, very few training units were having the trainee squat. They couldn't squat anymore. Isn't that where the pistol squat came from? Like also being able to drop. I don't know if that was like a rumor that I heard, but being able to drop quicker from a single leg squat than from a regular squat. Is there any truth in that, or is that just some story someone told me? Yeah, I I don't know. I I know the functional the functional squat being able to. Uh, being able to use the squat on a moment-to-moment -moment basis without thinking about it—that ends with a, you know by the time we're a couple years old, two, three, four years old, maybe. I don't know when that. You see little children, three, four-year-olds, and they're still squatting beautifully. But you look at a at a second grader, and they're already clumsy. Their bodies are locking up. And uh, I taught at Northern Illinois University years ago, and I I would sit in a squat. I would squat. Uh, with the students for prolonged periods of time and teach the class in a, in a full squat, just sitting there. I learned to do it when I was in uh, South, I was in Korea for a year and everybody, everybody around me could squat. 
And uh, so I decided when I, I was going to figure out how to regain my capacity to sleep and sit and live. And fortunately, I was living in the mountains. So I could use terrain features to elevate my heels. And finally, I could, I could sit comfortably now as I can. Well, so I was explaining to my class that we, we don't squat anymore. And I was talking about a booklet given to Chinese immigrants years ago, I think in the maybe early 80s. And it told them not to urinate in public, don't spit in public, and never squat in the United States. It's considered improper to squat. <laughs> and, and so what we've done is take the squat out of our culture so kids don't see anybody squatting. So they came back, uh, a couple of students came back and shared with the class. They went up to Madison, Wisconsin, and they were talking about this. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't let go of it because we talked about other issues, what, what it does to the body when you can't squat, how it destroys the body. And they squatted down to talk, and within minutes, the police pulled up and came over and said, we don't want to hassle you, but you see, we, we just saw you squatting here. Are you okay? <laughs> and so, 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 yeah, so to squat is so unusual. Well, imagine, imagine now when the research is so clear that if you try to evacuate your bowels on a 90-degree standard toilet, there's no way you're going to be able to do it properly. So you're going to pile up with, with, with um, putrefied waste in your body early on in life, and it'll never come out. And it will compact the body and it will poison the body. I, I was going to ask you about this. I'm glad you went to this point because I watched on one of your videos how you talked about this and, and, and clearing out the junk in your sinuses. And, and so that is something that even I've noticed. And I don't body weight squat, but I did get one of those squatty potties. And I've noticed a tremendous difference in going to the bathroom since then, even though my wife, she uses it. Sorry, Kim, outing you on it. Uh, but she's still embarrassed <laughs> when, when people see it in the bathroom. But it does. It's all about, you know, there is this ideal anatomical position for the reality of going to the bathroom because we didn't have and, and the fact now that we have a device which which approximates the proper position and it's sold in the mainstream tells us that that knowledge is slowly emerging again. And the fact that, it, you know, little guys like like I put it up on, on my YouTube channel to explain it. That knowledge is there, and, and Kohler Toilets even makes a squat toilet now because so many immigrants are coming. They still squat in Russia, China, uh, all over the world, Malaysia, Burma. Uh, I'm, I'm sure your listeners have been to countries where, where you have a squat toilet. Well, that, lead, that leads us to other issues, and the way we dress ourselves doesn't make it easy to accommodate uh, the, you know, the, this sort of the shift. And, and all of that piles up against us. All of that pushes against the culture. So we see more cancer. We see bloated. Uh, Schwarzenegger, Arnold Schwarzenegger has talked about how bodybuilders today, their, their abdominals are so bloated. Their, their stomach is bloated. You look at the early Strength and Health magazines, you have these beautiful concave stomachs. Well, we're killing ourselves. And you go back and during World War II, uh, a lot of these guys coming from rural communities that were still in outhouses. No. They were squatting. And then so was, you know, we lost it all. I didn't mean to cut you off on that, but the other one you had was the idea of, of not just collecting, you know, sitting fecal matter and bacteria within the intestines, but also within the sinuses. So there was, you, you had the video of yourself, like, I think, like a, an ear candle and the neti pot. 
And okay, is that, yeah. that something that you feel more people should be doing on the regular? Because that never gets spoken about. Like neti pots come up when people have like allergies or sick, like very specific reason to use it, but as opposed to like a general maintenance kind of thing. I've never done, I've done a neti pot. I've never done an ear candle though. Well, I started using the neti pot. Um, I saw it in the Himalayan Institute, uh, one of their, uh, one of their, uh, writers wrote a book on um, called The uh, Science of Breath, and this was in the early 70s, and uh, found it fascinating. It had already been been using other systems just from you know practicing judo and other martial arts back then, starting in about 1960. So I learned how to do it. I learned from Swami uh, Sachidananda's group out in California. I went out there to Montecito, and I think somebody out there was the first one who showed me. And I've been doing that now since the 70s, uh, but it has to be done correctly. Distilled water, the right amount of non-ionized salt, all of this comes down to education. Mm -hmm. And most people would do these things if they just had someone to show them how. And with the ear coning, now the neti washes, when I taught that at, the, at Northern Illinois, um, some of my faculty members were very concerned and tried to stop me. They thought it was scientifically uh, indefensible, and back then the medical community was against it for the most was against it, and uh, and so now you find them in drugstores, and we see that it makes sense, and there are products out there that that approximate it, but it's an ancient it's an ancient uh, practice, and the same the the uh, ear candles have been around a long time, but it's even more complicated now. Still, the the scientific and medical community are dead set against it, and. Uh, and I've been doing that since about 1960 also, but I did it for years without much result and until I came across the right cone and I've worked, I've worked out very precise methodologies. And if you look at that uh, playlist of ear candling, look at the amount of, of stuff since 2015. I kept it all. Oof. Look at, you'll see it. I, 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 I've never waited but it's well over a half pound, it's been a half pound and a pound of some sort of debris which looks organic and gooey and warm when it comes out. And uh, I'm, and I used to see a lot of cadavers when I was at Northern. I, I was, I taught next to the cadaver room at, uh, in DeKalb and, uh, and I went in there a lot to study the bodies and, and I was just amazed at the amount of toxic material that accumulates in a human body over time. And, slowly kills us and, it, I, and yeah it, it, it was kind of overwhelming that one video i saw uh listeners we, we i should clarify too a neti pot is you you can find these at almost any drugstore now um they're usually next to like the saline sprays but it's it is it's a pot and it looks like a little mini teapot in a way and you basically following instructions put it up one nostril and it flushes out your sinuses and will come out the other nose uh, other nostril um to help clear out any mucus and whatnot that, and, and other stuff that you might have clogging up your system. And an ear cone or candle is, if you've ever noticed seeing a, a picture or a video of somebody laying on their side, usually there's like a piece of tinfoil between the, you know, the candle and their, their face. And then there's a candle coming out that's actually partially in the ear. I, I don't know how deep it goes. I, I haven't tried this yet. And the, the candle draws out wax and other material that would be in the ear canal. Is that a safe, uh, a correct description? Yeah, that's it. And, and skeptics say that, that they, the residue in the cone is produced by the cone and not from the human body. And proponents will say, no, it's real. I can feel it. 
And I don't take a stand on it. I'm I'm going to do it for another. I think I've done it for over 60 years. So I'm going to you know go another 10 years. If it doesn't work, I'm going to quit. But but the first but the first time I did it this many times uh, was back. I started in 2015. I've never heard of anyone doing what I would call sustained coning. I've coned my ears over a hundred times since 2015. Wow. It's unheard of, and, and I kept all the debris. I kept all of the stuff. And how frequently are you doing it, and how much debris per time? Like, uh, how quickly is this stuff accumulating within your system? Well, uh, if you go to YouTube, and I, I'll give I'll give your listeners the YouTube channel so they can see it for themselves. And one of the playlists I think is called Ear Coning, and it's Via Militaris. It's Latin, V I A Victor, V I A M I L I T A. R-I-S, via militaris, and, and make sure you put all the words together. I, I, when I first built the website, I built it mostly for soldiers, and, and I didn't want it to have too many people showing up, so I, I made it Latin and made it hard to find. Sure, I'll put but, a link uh, for it on the, on the podcast. Yeah. Page so so I, I can only say that, uh, that it's changed over time, and, and the results have, have changed as I got better and better at doing it. And... Uh, I, I quit for six months, so I did. I did about a hundred, well over a hundred times, starting in 2015, and then I quit for about six months. And about a month ago, I started again, and I've done like maybe two weeks ago I started doing it, and I just did it yesterday again, and I'm still pulling debris out. Some of the debris, it, it feels like it's coming out of my neck. As strange as it sounds, because oh, wow. when you look, yeah, you look at the way the ear is built. The skeptical say it's a closed box. But I'm and, and I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know what the hell is going on. I just know that I just know that these these clumps of this this amazing brown stuff show up in the cone, and I store it in my refrigerator in two containers now. But I remember when yeah, I remember when I was doing the um, uh, the neti wash. I I uh, I showed my class, and then the next day it was stress management, and I our final. Uh, depended upon the year. I, sometimes I took them into the cadaver room as as their fi- as their final stressor, as a surprise, and let them look at dead <laughs> bodies. And, uh, and and it happened that they were cutting a they had uh, they had bisected a head, and they were digging in. And I asked the the woman who was who was doing the work. I said, "Is it possible to pour water in one nostril and out the other?" And she said, "Absolutely not. That would never work." And the whole class started chuckling because I'd just done it the day before. So even then, we didn't understand how all this works, and so I don't know whether I don't know whether it works or not. I can only say now that I'm an old man, and I've I've been uh, I've had hearing I I was blown up I I was in explosions and you know and freaking weapons next to my ear before we had earplugs and and uh, the fact is the hearing's still pretty good. And, and and I suspect it, it's probably from the coning, but it's felt a lot better lately. Some of these clumps are so they're so obvious that they're coming out of the body. They make a whooshing sound, and they come out like hard little kidney stones. So I don't know how it works yet, but I'm keeping all of it. And someday maybe we'll find someone that wants to test it and see what it really is. <laughs> well, not that I'm heading over anytime soon, but remind me to never go in your refrigerator. Well, it's uh, it's really it's really an important issue because if what I saw inside these heads is a slow death, 
yeah. and all of the work we go to the gym to try to do and all of the function function dies when the, when the body dies and and the ancients the ancients gave us ways to keep ourselves alive and lucid um, and if we rediscover them and learn how to use them properly we will become the enlightened society so yeah, I mean, I, I, we, since I was a health teacher, I, I've never had any problem looking at the inside of the body with disdain. You know, I look at it more clinically. Yeah. And, uh, it, and I really want to know what the right way is. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it sort of goes in line now with, you know, when people are looking at health in, in terms of not just losing weight, but how everybody's, we're finally dialing into like your gut biome and what type of bacteria makeup you have in, you know, in your intestinal tract and all that stuff to having more of a physical output because so much it's been simplified to not even take that in, but they're finding just not having the right bacteria in your stomach now is a, you know, can lead to a whole bunch of physical uh, ailments just dialing that in. So it would make sense that across the board, no one wants to think of our body as being loaded with like, garbage and bacteria right we, we like to think of ourselves as being a, a singular soul entity whereas the most part we are a, a shared ecosystem with many other billions of little things crawl you know that, that make us up basically and it would make sense that in, in any place you have like an opening or a, a cavity within the body that that, that type of stuff's going to happen and for good or for bad um i want to bring us back around to just talk about indian clubs a little bit more and then i definitely want to hit up uh discuss inversion tables and the, and the boots a little bit but going back to Indian clubs for, for listeners that aren't familiar with Indian clubs uh, we've had a, a few people on that were into Indian clubs and mace on the show and I would say Dr. Thomas is really you know the person that most of us would have gotten the first the, the, the first set of Indian clubs that I saw readily available came with your DVD uh, included in them and, and I know I got the one pound set and then a two pound set but the one pound had the DVD included in them and you and I were having, so they, they look, um, for lack of a better phrase, like bowling pins or juggling pins, and you do circular motions with them to try to oversimplify this as much as possible. I'll put a, a video up on the, on the website for this. Uh, can you explain, because you, you broke down the circular training aspect in a really nice way on the phone with me the other day, just in terms of like the nodding within the system. Uh, could you explain that to the listeners? What, what are one of the big benefits of Indian clubs? And, and it goes back to that spiritual nature of, you know, the, the Vedic. Oh, yeah, the mystical, the yeah. mystical interpretation of, yes. the, of the Indian club is that, is that we are all um, vibrating energy entities. And, uh, and, 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 and when, we, when we look at through our own technology, we see these, these energies flowing out of us and all these, you know, and all around us, within us, whatever that means. And these flowing patterns within us according to the Vedic, according to the Indian club uh, theory, is that it comes to life when we add one more ball and socket joint to the arm and then put the weight out on the end. So that's why it looks like, that's why people often think of it as a bowling pin, but it's an actual circular, it's a ball at one end and then the, then the neck and then the weights on the end. And so by swinging the club in these beautiful circular patterns in these in multi-plane movements we are we are we are re we are reigniting those circular those circular flow patterns within us and in order to do that you you know the shoulder has to talk intelligently to the 
to the elbow, and the elbow has to communicate with the wrist all the way down to the fingertips and then down to the toes. And, and so these circular patterns reawaken the circular movement inside and out. And, and uh, that's the mystical. And then the, the, uh, the mechanical, the reason why the Army used them for rehab during World War II, goes back to simple things like proprioception and, and circular flow patterns. But for the average person, uh, you know, for the average folks out there that, that want to have shoulders when they get older, that forward flexion required, hyperflexion required in the desk leaves the pectoral areas generally locked you see so many people with protruding scapula and forward neck these days, and even if they're trying to stand up straight, they still feel how difficult it is to sustain it. So to get that back and to reawaken, to reawaken that muscular balance, um, the Indian clubs are perhaps the oldest known way to do that. And uh, in, in my, own, uh, my own experience began when I was about eight years old because the Germans adopted them. And, uh, and this Davenport, where I live now, was one of the centers for Indian clubs for the country. Wow. Uh, the Reuter family, yeah. And so there were lots of people around using Indian clubs when I was a little boy, and many of them had already been to war. Many of them took this stuff almost just very mystically and seriously. So I had, I had teachers who taught me to use them with reverence. And so... Uh, just like with the harmonica you see, that, that you probably saw on my website. Yeah. Uh, everything to me was, was used for, a, a, oh, I don't know, a, 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 just a very, in a very respectful way, almost, I guess, a mystical way. And that goes back to my childhood. And that never changed. So, yeah. And, 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 you and find- so I, nobody wanted to do it when I was a kid. I mean, <laughs> and nobody, everybody laughed at, at Indian clubs because they, and medicine balls and all that sort of stuff, which is why I have a reputation today for being what they call a pioneer, just because I'm old enough to remember when we were still doing it, and I lived in a town that still had some of it. Indian clubs, like kettlebells at the start, they they drew in people that would be interested in the history of physical culture, you know, as opposed to just like the latest fitness trend. I think you had to have, at least for me and the people that I, you know, met at my first course or all of the Indian clubs or maze courses I've taken, there's a mindset that, you know, a respect for the history of what these bring and, and that they've proven to bring. But, and, and the history is also like an enticing aspect as opposed to just, you know, people don't look at a barbell and think about the history of the barbell or, a, you know, a leg extension machine and think about what's the beautiful history of a leg extension machine. But you find these, you know, for lack of a, a, you know, fellow fitness nerds like myself that are like, you know, we want to know more about the history of it and bring that in. And that spiritual side, the mystical side is really, you know, uh, sings to people because there is a spiritual aspect of training. You know, uh, people like to say the mind and the body, but, but just you kind of need both to be as healthy as possible. And well, that's just, the difference between the monkey training and the human training we talked about, that the monkey training is a very low level uh, very personalized. It's uh, but the uh, the human training, uh, the human the human being, uh, human being has this this unwavering notion that they are something larger than a human body, and it it manifests in things we call religion or spirituality or whatever you want to call it, but it's something that every one of us feels within us. It's, there's some spark of the of the eternal of the divine, not only in what we can make and create 
but what we feel in our being. And, and the physical training then can be adapted to, to treat the body more like a temple. What I used to tell students is that when I was a little boy, my body was a toy. And I would make up games, you know, I would make up a reason to go do something like, like, the, like the games or something, you know, the competition or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I became a soldier and none of that meant anything anymore. My body became a tool. And even if I got a sunburn when I was in the army, I'd get an Article 15 because my body was a, I was, I was being trained to sacrifice my body if necessary on the battlefield, but never injure it unnecessarily through my own stupidity. So my body became a tool, like my weapon, and I would care for it with that respect. Then I got older, and then I began to realize I won't be here forever in this body. This is a temple. So it went from a toy to a tool to a temple. And I find the people that, you know, as from a training perspective, the people that come in, your gym members, your your clients that come in and have the greatest success isn't just physical success it's because they, they tap into that most people don't come in thinking like i want to feel you know emotionally better about myself they come in and they think that like if i look better i'll feel better just by default um you know it, it, it's usually the initial thing coming in is an aesthetic goal or a pain you know uh trying to get out of pain type of goal and the great thing is is when you know they might not even see the physical change but you can see that that spiritual change they're starting to realize that they can do more than they thought they were capable of. And I don't mean just lifting heavy things, that there's just something they found inside themselves. And then when you watch that grow, it's a pretty amazing thing. And fortunately it seems to happen, you know, very often that you can get somebody comes in with one thing and kind of leaves a different person uh, at at the end of it. Like, you know, at Mark Fisher fitness, we say, you know, uh, a better, you know, their most actualized version of themselves in a way. Yeah, when we, when we transform our bodies to a fully human and upright position, the world looks different. When we, when we, for instance, move off the ground, like you were mentioning inversion equipment, when we restore that, that, that vestibular function, that whole universe outside of the upright position belongs to us again. We've doubled the size of our known universe when we can train upside down. And then in all the variants that you can, you can move in, not for a stunt, but for a function, for a day-to-day function to be able to, to live in complete harmony in those positions, then that means you're changing the body in a way which is both healing inside and out. And then when you, uh, I think on the website I have uh, one channel dedicated also to something which will probably... I think you'll see it in your lifetime. I'm sure you will. You, you'll be around at least 30 more years. You'll see the, uh, the use of sound in, in physical training. And you'll yeah. see, like, if, you were, if you're in your 40s, you probably grew up around a heavy metal and techno music, that sort of thing. Very much so heavy metal, not so much on the techno, but yeah. Yeah, heavy, yeah. And so, so every, every generation produces what it calls music, which is a reflection of the confusion it sees around it. And so the music simply reflects the harmony or the confusion. So you were, 1980s were a very confusing time for a human being to grow up and a very torturous physical time because of the furniture and the poor physical training, poor physical development that you were given. And so the music reflects that disturbance 
So what you've got now, and, and, and all this is in real time, is that there's a whole generation, your generation is rediscovering sounds that can heal. Yeah. This is all theory right now, whether you're talking sophigial scales or rife frequencies and all of that. All of that is emerging in real time. And, and I think you'll see down the road that connecting that to physical training is going to give us back humanity for those who go down that road. It, it makes total sense that it is that it that is probably in the next phase as we've we've sort of been like I, I think the nice thing that in the phase that we're in now if we look at at least progressive side of fitness is we're opening our eyes to a lot of these older things that are coming back i mean let's face it most of what we would call cutting edge kettlebell training is all old school russian science basically practices put in so even that stuff's not cutting edge and new it's just us interpreting you know our interpretation of older uh training methodologies. We're just adapting, adapting them to, uh, you know, I guess uh, our current uses in terms of the inversion table. So for, for folks that aren't aware inversion tables, if you've ever seen one of those tables with where you can strap in your feet and hang upside down or the boots that you can strap around your ankles, your shins, and then hang upside down, they've been getting a lot of play. And we, we spoke about this on, on Joe Rogan from the Joe Rogan podcast and UFC talks a lot about, um, inversion training and i know he also ha talks about some implement that he puts on uh under his chin that helps stretch the neck out as well i was introduced through my paul alexander my my acupuncturist who i, I was dealing with some back trouble specifically in the left ql that would kind of like twist up my my left uh, my left hip and so i got a table and it's pretty amazing i have to admit i don't use it as much as i should uh, my wife hates having it in the living room <laughs> but can you, aside from just the, well, the main benefit being, you know, the decompression and then the, I guess the secondary benefit, if you would view this as a secondary benefit, is that stimulation of the vestibular system of just simply getting used to being your brain absorbing and being able to get comfortable and realize where it is completely inverted in space. Is there, mm -hmm. would you say those are the two primary gifts of it or is there, there something, another one I'm missing there? Well, it certainly changed over time for me. I I began in the in the German gymnastics and uh, years ago, and we did we did inversion. They, they had all kinds of ways to rig it. A lot of the bodybuilders had all kinds of stuff uh, to do it. But it really changed for me in the early 70s. I was out. I'd go out to a place called Gold's Gym in Venice in the 70s when it was like the only golds in the country because I was teaching weight training at the U of Iowa and I, I'd go out there and steal ideas. And I was already using an inversion device called a Physicare machine, which I found in Bradenton, Florida. This had been like 73. And I just couldn't, I, I couldn't explain, I couldn't even explain to the students the benefits I'd felt even in a short period of time by developing uh, by developing using you know developing skill sets on the, on this equipment, but I saw Franco Colombo and Frank Zane using the boots then, and I found out that the guy who invented them lived in Pasadena and had a clinic, and I went over and introduced myself. His name was Robert M. Martin, and uh, he was originally from Iowa, my hometown, and he was a he was a chiropractor, an osteopath, and an M.D. And then had, it was a vaudeville gymnast and trained in the German gymnastics system when he was a boy. But he was my senior by, I think, maybe 10 or 20 years. And so we got on very well. And over the next 20 or 30 years, he, he let me come into his life and he, and he, and he, he helped me, he mentored me. Uh, to, he said that 
as a physician, he had his place up above his clinic where he brought people back to life. He was a real Joe Pilates type guy. He had stuff that never made made the light of day in things he invented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just brilliant. And he said that, uh, he said, now, as a doctor, I can work on one person. But as an educator, you can work on hundreds, thousands of them. And we worked on protocols that we would use to employ his his vision and his so he trained me basically um, and 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 he had been a he'd been a balance guy and I'd been a balance guy so we were about the same size and it worked out really well for me to learn from him and then he but he eventually he became a recluse he went bankrupt I think they went bankrupt in maybe the 80s uh, the medical community and the scientific community swore that turning the body head downward was dangerous and useless and. And then people started to misuse the equipment and, and they got hurt and his insurance rates went up and he went bankrupt, lost millions and millions of dollars and, and just turned away from society and, and lived the rest of his life without being able to contribute to the world. And it was very sad. But I was, uh, I'd worked with him then and went out to see him and got his unpublished manuscripts and some of the stuff that he never, never, that never made it to the market that he uses. And, uh, Another sad story of being a little bit too early, you know, for the people. But now, as you say, they're very popular. And uh, But it all depends on how it's done, Jerry. It all depends on how you do it. I, I know. I, I'll speak for myself. <laughs> I, I, typical. I, I went too quickly to complete, you know, 180 vertical. And mm. now I know uh, short increments, getting used to hanging upside down. I don't go. I, I keep the tether on my table so that I'm not fully there. Um and I found a sweet spot and then I just gradually start to lower that. But again, I haven't been training it enough, so I haven't sharpened the angle that much, but I feel fantastic when I come off of it. Yeah. It's uh, all the research is in now and, and, uh, and, and there's been great research on, on, on back pains and all kinds of problems. So yeah, it just took, and it just took a while for the public to, uh, to get it. And then the, the hangups brand is the industry standard and I met uh, Roger Teeter uh, at, at back when they first started, and and uh, just a wonderful man. And I've worked with them over the years, and and uh, so we have really good equipment. And the the and the, the spider and the and the uh, the cobra uh, hangups boots are just really strong. And uh, on the website on my YouTube channel, I've got uh, I've got a whole playlist of what I call training in uncommon postures that your viewers can, or your listeners can, can study to look at some of the sequences that we developed down at Fort Benning and at Graceland university. That might be helpful. Yeah. You had some interesting video on one of them that I was watching of you with the boots, but also hanging on to like a uh, monkey bars, like, you know, uh, horizontal ladder, horizontal ladder. Yeah. Uh, working in movements that I thought was interesting that I wouldn't have thought of. I bought the boots. So about, about a year and a half ago, I, I started having some, not only back trouble, but it turns out I was having some tremoring issues through my thyroid. I, I found out I had Graves disease and I bought for my back. I bought the boots, <laughs> but then with the lack of stability overall throughout my system, because of the tremors, I couldn't get up into the rack to even hang myself up. I, I was just, uh, paranoid and that's actually why I, I took the boots back to get the table it's just and now at home I have no place I would have been able to hang up hang up the boots anyway but I think even quite frankly the ability for somebody to get to the point where they can comfortably get into the boots on their own on a bar is probably a pretty good life skill just as in terms of a mobility test um to be able to get into position 
because that's a that's a that's a tricky thing to get into, uh, but certainly worthwhile once you're there. Yeah, and with with the, with the right type of training, and and I'm I'm I don't know how old I'm, 73 now, and and the videos that I've posted are are all recent. I just in fact I just put one up. Uh, the last one I put up, I'm I'm on an inversion table. And I set the balance so precisely that I can oscillate just by moving my feet back and forth. And I'm using a harmonica. So when, when the body goes head downwards, that changes the fluid forces on, say, the cranium. On, on the, but the cranium, but it's what they call a closed box. So you'd have to do a hell of a lot of pressure to blow a, to blow a fuse in the brain. I mean, you could accomplish it if you really try, you know. Squeeze your, squeeze your ass and, and really push up toward your head and you you probably blow your brains out, but you know, at 60 degrees head downward. But if you do it very gently and then use the harmonica and find some beautiful frequencies that resonate within you, there are even some rife frequencies for thyroid function. And, uh, I should look that so, up, actually. Yeah, and so it's not that any of this stuff works, and that's the that's the cool part about living outside the box. When I was uh, when I was finished my master's degree, I decided I'd work on a PhD. That lasted about three months, and I went to an EDD. And back then, an EDD was considered a stepchild, you know, the lesser of the two degrees, the PhD, so ours is the real doctorate. But what I found is the PhD was that I was often encumbered in, in being able to, uh, I was kept from going too far outside the box. There were certain, like, like leaning backward uh, was contraindicated when I was uh, uh, working on my doctorate. And I had to agree that you weren't supposed to lean backward, but intuitively I knew that was crazy. And so even I even got into Dutch uh, at U of Iowa for using the inversion equipment. That they were my professors were very skeptical that it that it was good. So I went with an EDD, and I I can just go anywhere I want, and then let the scientists figure out if it makes sense or not. Well, I really appreciate that approach because you know. Uh, when the original thing we reached out, I had reached out to Dr. Thomas folks um, because, you know, I used to be a part of this Indian club program through Dragon Door and I'm a big believer in Indian clubs. I use them all the time myself, but there's not really a lot of access for people except for the occasional workshop to do it. And, you know, after getting back into practicing them as opposed to just performing them like doing the same thing, but really, really trying to invest time and in getting better at them. And, you know, I, I'm going to be teaching a course in Japan, a two hour Indian club, basic intro course for my friends, um, Travis and Calorie. And, you know, then as I was prepping for that, I'm like, you know, uh, you know, our friend James does a, a full blown flexible steel international Indian club cert, but I wanted to just do something, uh, three or four hours, something, here's how you get, just to get people hands quickly, safely, effectively with a base, base, baseline knowledge of why. And so I reached out because the heart of, I think, all of our teaching is from Dr. Thomas and what we learned, the program that, you know, from the, straight from the DVD that came with the set, straight from, you know, uh, you were the big influence on, on Brett and Gray and the material that they put out, the workshop that I assisted you and, and Brett at with, with James and Matt Flaherty and Noah, all those guys. And you had, I didn't know how you were going to respond. I didn't think you were going to be a jerk about it in any way, but it, Dr. Thomas was just the greatest, most generous. Like I told you from the beginning, it, this is a, I didn't make this up. Take what we have, make it yours and go share it. And 
I think that says a lot about, you know, when you're mentioning these degrees, one of the things that comes up on this podcast a lot is just there's so much dogma in fitness, even outside of the doctor level stuff, just in terms of brand initials and whatnot. And people like to rally behind. Now, if you believe in a system like some of the ones I teach for, um, that's great. But I'm also never going to shut down everything else and just say, these are the only options out there. And I just really appreciated that attitude of, yeah, let's share it. Let's, let's help people. You know, it goes back to that when uh, Teeter said, you know, you can, as an educator, share, like we can share and get these good things in people's hands with, with, with good information. And uh, thank you for allowing me to teach this course and giving your blessing on it. Uh, Listeners, this isn't a sales pitch for it yet, but it's going to be through Original Strength, and it's simply going to be called OS Indian Clubs. And uh, it just shows that like, you're not just saying these things. Like, you, you walk the walk in a million ways. And I don't know anybody that knows you that would think otherwise. But it caught me off guard because sometimes, you know, uh, I like to think, you know, just share and just get it out there. And I, I don't tend to work in a competition-based. I want my courses to do well. But I don't see myself in competition with other brands. They certainly have impacts on attendance at a times, plus or negative. Uh, but it's more about like helping the people than establishing ourselves. So I just wanted to say thank you publicly on this podcast because I thought that was awesome. I, I was pretty much singing to my wife after we got off the phone on that one. Well, you know, most of my life I was I was either a university professor or a Department of Defense worker, federal and, and a state employee. So I didn't have to have a brand. Uh, you know, I, I never, in fact, I don't even own that video that I gave the rights to that away. And when, when I did that, that uh, certification up in, at Dragon Door, I gave all that money away to uh, those, the folks I brought up there to help me. I gave it to my student assistants and to, to the other instructors. I donated that. And uh, I didn't because I because I had the you know I worked for the state and I worked for the for the country and I was paid by paid by them and all that was extra. So uh, no, that's my that would be the that would be the goal that uh, that you take all that and go out and add to it what you already know and uh, that's what the certifications were for too. I'm sure that to set you guys free to go out and, and uh, you know make it uh, make it your own system. Oh, thank you. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot, Dr. Thomas, because we've been chatting for a while. Will you come back on the show in a couple of weeks? I, I definitely want to get into this harmonica breathing thing, but uh, we're, we're running out of time for today. Well, that, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Yeah, I would recommend first that your, your listeners go in and, and study the videos, study the clips, and that's the only social network uh, presence I've got it is via Militaris YouTube. That way, um, I can you know I can speak I can speak to some of it, and, and, and many of them will already have a background. So yeah, I'll do that for you. Awesome, thank you. I think that's really important stuff, and and you just you're a wealth of knowledge in a lot of areas that people don't get to talk about or, or hear from. So uh, that's the definitely the big thing that I, I would want to hit up again. But as we're running out of time, so I will put the link to the YouTube channel um, up on the contents page of this Facebook, and Dr. Thomas. Um, any place else people can follow you up? It's basically the YouTube channel is the main way people will reach you. That's it. I am going to do one workshop, and that's on the tw- on the 29th of this month in Des Moines, Iowa, and that's going to be a women's Indian club immersion. We're going to celebrate women's Indian club traditions all the way back to the suffragettes. And uh, 
and that's uh, I think they can find that by just typing my name and and just uh, going to Indian Club Inver Indian Club Immersion, and they'll find uh, they'll find the event. I'll make Whatever. sure to put a, a link to that listeners on the content page, but also on the coach Fury podcast specific Facebook page. So that people have access to that. Cause I think that. Yeah. If you've got, if you've got some, some women who are interested and then want to come all the way out here to Des Moines for that, but that's about all I'm going to do. And I don't think it's necessary. You guys have good fundamental skills and it really reminds me of fractals. If you have the basics, you can go forever, infinite number of sub patterns. If you just get those basic skills down. Yeah, awesome. And so the way we wrap up every show is the guest tells the listeners to die mighty because my mission statement is for people to live long, be strong, and die mighty. So Dr. Thomas, can you tell the listeners to die mighty? Yeah, there was, uh, there was the, uh, the ambassador uh, to the United Nations, Doug Hammershield, said it. He said, my, I trained my body to be all it could be and ready at any moment to give it up uh, in one simple sacrifice. Amazing. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time and just for your support. Um, it was great getting a chat with you and uh, I'll email you if not later today, early tomorrow and no rush. We'll just um, set up a time to come back on again. And listeners, I'm going to put the, the link to the YouTube channel on and especially my fitness friends that are, and enthusiasts that are listening to this that I know are already involved in the Indian club world or have been thinking about the May Scotta training world. You should really check out the stuff here just as a gateway, you should be very aware of what's going on, uh, what Dr. Thomas is promoting, but also all my fellow like OS, um, you know, PRI breathing buddies out there, really some amazing stuff on this channel um, and physical culture nerds. So please check that stuff out. And thank you so much, Dr. Thomas. It was great chatting with you. All right. See ya. The Coach Fury Podcast is created, owned, and produced by Steve Coach Fury Holliner for Fury Industries, LLC. Music provided by The FTW. Visit the FTW.nyc for band, tour, music, and merch info. Artwork created by Glenn Gurrieta. Visit glengurrieta.com. That's G-L-E-N-N-U-R-I-E-T-A. Or follow him on Instagram at Glenn Gurrieta. Voiceover by Laura Palmer.